There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Today's guest is Padia Sai. Her life's journey has been one of huge challenges, from her arrival in the United States as an immigrant who didn't speak a word of English and the loss of both parents, and extraordinary triumphs that include completing law school, becoming a criminal prosecutor, and being a leader in the financial industry. These days, she's dubbed the Duchess of Decorum and is wowing her ever-expanding TikTok audience as she explains the ins and outs of etiquette and workplace decorum. And, and perhaps most importantly, I have to add that Patty is a true blue Dallas Cowboys fan. So I knew okay. we were kindred spirits from the very start. Patty Asai, welcome to the Next Steps Forward. Thanks, Chris. Go Cowboys. Say one thing we have to say before we start one big question. <laughs> right. How about them Cowboys? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So on a more serious note, I mentioned the huge challenges that you faced. Let's start there because we talk so much about leadership through adversity, how people triumph over adversity, speak so much to who they are and can be so instructive to others facing their own challenges. You were born in Iran. How, when, and why did your family come to the United States? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we came when the revolution happened. My mother actually worked for the Shah of Iran. She was the head nurse in uh, the maternity ward at the hospital where the Shah, um, that the Shah owned and the government owned. And um, my dad also had a very prominent career in Iran. And once the revolution occurred, um, my dad was really afraid that they would come after us and they would want to kill us just because we had connections with the Shah. So we essentially escaped. I mean, we escaped with a few suitcases and our airplane was the last flight that was allowed out of Iran. After our airplane left, they completely shut down the entire airspace. Yeah. So we were very, very fortunate to get out. If I can just stick with that for a minute, I just can't imagine, you know, we've seen that you know, a month or so ago with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, people trying to flee. Yep. What was it like trying to escape a situation like that? And how did you do it? Yeah, it, it was it was really it was really horrific because, um, you know, we lived in an area that was kind of like a compound and a lot of people that worked for the Shah live there. And I remember um, the night that we left, there were thousands and thousands of people outside of the gate wanting to break in to kill us. So if you can imagine, you know, I was seven years old and just the thoughts of not knowing what was going to happen in our future. And the only way that we got out is because my dad had an importing and exporting business. And because of that, he had a lot of connections in the airlines and the airports. So he made a call and, you know, they were like, okay, come, let's do it. You have to, you have to do it now. So I don't remember exactly how we got to the, to the airport, but I remember boarding that plane and just being scared to death, you know, thinking that we were, we were going to die any second. I can imagine doing that today when I'm 51, let alone right. at the age, age of seven. Um, yeah, it was hard. Uh, I mean, kudos to you and your, and your family. So that's just terrific. Thank you. So when you got here at age seven, you know, any English, I visited other countries where I don't speak the language, but there's a big difference between me being someplace for a day or two and being thrown in that situation permanently. How long did it take you to learn English? What approaches did you take? And what was that process like? It was very hard because in the beginning, you know, they kind of threw you in school back then. There wasn't ESL or any special programs. So I remember the first day of school, they, um, took me in and I sat down. And the only thing I can remember is the teacher saying my name because I didn't speak any English. And I was so intimidated that the entire day I didn't look up from my shoe. Like my head was just down the entire day because I felt so intimidated. I didn't know how to even say to go to the bathroom or anything like that. So that was my first day. Um, but, you know, luckily kids are very resilient, right? So, and I learned to adapt I started to you know, make some friends and slowly started to learn English. And um, it took me, I would say, a few years to really get the hang of the language. But I also think that it was hard for me academically because it took me years to catch up. I don't think I caught up academically 
until I was probably in ninth grade is when I think I actually, you know, caught up with my peers. So that was a really a huge roadblock for me because I was, I was thinking, I'm just not smart. <laughs> you know, I'm just not that bright when that wasn't it. I just didn't have, you know, the academic background and language background. Well, we know the smarts and brightness is, is not an issue right now. Let's stick, <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> let's stick with the academics there for a minute. When you were younger, you had difficulty focusing on lessons in school because you have ADHD and dyslexia. Yes. That obviously added to the challenges of learning a new language. In what other ways did it add to the difficulties of growing up and how did you overcome those obstacles? Was there a mentor that helped you? What were the challenges? Yes. So, you know, yes, I couldn't speak English and I couldn't sit still. And I was dyslexic. <laughs> so the, the, those, that's not a great combination, right? It's a horrible combination. So, um, you know, while I was learning English, I was always known as my, you know, my teachers would tell my parents, she's a great girl. You know, we really like her. She just talks too much. And that's because I couldn't sit still. And um, I had, you know, difficulty processing information because I had dyslexia, right? So I really had to just suck it up and do what I, what I could with it. Because again, back then, you weren't diagnosing people with ADHD. You weren't diagnosing people with dyslexia. It was like, oh, she just has a hard time learning. Guess she's not that smart. So I went through that until the ninth grade. And it wasn't until the ninth grade, um, my ninth grade English teacher, his name is Gary Stoddard. Um, I'll never forget him. He, uh, he told me I was doing well in English for the first time. And he said, you know, you should be in AP English next year. I was like, oh, what? What do you mean? And he's like, yeah, you should be in AP English. I'm like, are you sure I can do it? He's like, absolutely. You're really smart. And that's the first time someone had called me smart. And um, the next year, I remember the first day of AP English, I was so intimidated. I walked in. I was like, I, I definitely don't belong here. But very quickly, I learned that um, I was just as smart, if not smarter than the people in those classes. And that just changed my mindset because I'm like, oh, my gosh, I am smart. So I started to excel in school. I became, you know, one of the top people in a lot of the classes. And that really changed the trajectory of my life. You know, if, if it weren't for Mr. Soddard, I probably wouldn't be here today. Have you had any contact with him since then? Does he know the, the great success that you are? Uh, yes. So he left right after my freshman year. He went to teach at BYU and um, so we lost touch and I reached out to him a few years ago on LinkedIn and I told him the story and I said, you know, you changed my life. And he said, thank you so much for sharing that with me because you never know as a teacher whether you're actually impacting someone's life or if you're not. And, um, and I, I owe him so much, so much for that. That's great. I love those yeah. stories. So there's recently been a lot of talk about ADHD being overdiagnosed. Do you think that causes some parents to mistrust a diagnosis, excuse me, diagnosis of ADD or ADHD? Uh, yes, for sure. I think as soon as, you know, they see a kid that can't sit still, they're like, oh, well, you definitely have ADHD. And that's typically not the case because ADHD typically, I'm not a doctor, but from what I've been told, doesn't happen by itself. Um, it comes with another type of learning disability. So like I have ADHD and dyslexia right? It typically manifests itself with something else. So just pure ADHD in itself um, is not necessarily a thing. Um, I am really more concerned about um, it being overtreated because kids, you know, are diagnosed with ADHD and then pumped with drugs. And that really is something that is very, very disheartening to me. And, you know, we're just pumping our kids with drugs and not understanding what it's doing to them and their mental capacities. And you're just numbing the children. And that's, that's really hard. And I think a lot of parents do that because for some reason, there's a stigma of your child having ADHD, right? But this is just something that they were born with. Just like someone is born tall, someone is born short. It's just another characteristic. It's nothing to be ashamed of. And um, they can definitely overcome it, you know, as, as I have. So it's not an, anything to be ashamed of. And I think parents need to understand that and stop pumping drugs into these, to these kids. And I'm sure you have a wealth of advice that you can share with parents of adopt, and adopted parents of immigrant, immigrant children. What would you tell them as someone who's been through this journey as an immigrant child to help today's youngest immigrants navigate their way through a new country? Oh, Chris, I can talk about an hour just, <laughs> just on this topic. The mic is yours. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I think it, 
one thing that immigrant kids need to understand is that they're not bound by their current circumstances, that this can be temporary and their parents brought them to this country so they can have a better life, better opportunities. And they have an opportunity to write their own damn hero story like I did and do with it what you wish. It's not going to be easy. Life is going to suck for a while. You're going to work a hundred times harder than the non-immigrant. You're going to work a hundred times harder than the affluent kid. They're going to be handed opportunities that you have to fight and claw for. Okay. So it's going to be hard. And, you know, you're going to feel jealous of people around you that don't have to go through those struggles, that don't have these weird parents that don't speak English or do weird things, or, you know, that they have parents that are helping them in their schooling and whatnot, and your parents aren't able to do that. You're going to feel that jealousy. And, you know, for example, I remember when I was in law school, I went to law school full time and I worked three jobs. I had two waitressing jobs and I worked at a law firm and my best friend didn't have to work at all. Everything was paid for. So I was like jealous of her, right? Like, why can't I be that? But what people have to understand is when you're an immigrant and the struggles that you have to go through, you are building character and you're building determination, you're building resilience, and most important, adaptability and survival instincts that most people don't have. To be able to adapt as an immigrant and to be able to survive as an immigrant these are skills that are going to serve you so much better in life than the people that didn't have to go through the struggle. So go through the struggle and reach your goal because once you do, that goal is going to be so much sweeter than the person who reaches a goal that hasn't had to struggle for it. Because for some reason, you know, in our mentality, when we have to work harder for something, we just like it more, right? And those skills are going to help you so much in life. And, you know, I want to give the example when I was in private equity in 2009 and the market crashed. And most of the people that I worked with came from affluent backgrounds, most of them, not all of them. Um, and they really didn't have to struggle. So when we shut the doors in our firm, everyone was freaking out like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I'm going to be homeless. You know, freaking out. But since I had the ability to adapt and those survival instincts that I learned, I wasn't freaked out at all. I was like, well, I can just go wait tables and make, you know, $60,000 a year. It's fine. I, let me just think about the next step, right? What am I going to do next? While they were sitting there freaked out. And um, I just had lunch with my boss from that old firm. And he told me, he said, you know, out of everyone that came out of that firm, you're the most successful one. And I don't think I would be that if I wasn't an immigrant and if I wasn't able to adapt and if I wasn't able to survive. So uh, know that you have a lot of advantages when you're an immigrant because you have to go through those struggles. And in the long run, you're going to be more successful than, than most people could ever be. Well, I know you're working on a book and we're going to get to that a little bit later, but I think we just found something, a title for your shortlist anyway of write your own damn immigrant story. I love that. <laughs> so just, just putting that out there. I love it. Maybe I'll use it. <laughs> well, I wrote that down for you. We can share that later. So, it's been a while since you left your, your home country. Have you been back to Iran or do you have any plans to go back? Um, I have been back. I've been twice and um, I, I love it there. You know, it's interesting. I've lived most of my life in the U.S., uh, but the feeling that I get when I'm in Iran is just very different. It's, it's a feeling that, I, that, you know, I've never experienced in the U.S. It's just a feeling of being home and your native country and your native land and people speaking your native language. So yeah, I, I actually really love Iran. I, I, and I would love to go back again. You faced adversity when you lost both of your parents at the age of 24. And on top of that, you were left with the responsibility of taking care of your brother. A lot of young people would say, I can't do that. Someone else is going to have to take care of him, but you didn't. Can you tell us about that chapter in your life? Sure. I, Again, I, I think that came from the immigrant mentality that you take care of your family, right? So it wasn't even a question of whether my brother was my responsibility or not. I just took on that responsibility. And, you know, it was a bit of a struggle because uh, my brother in his own right, I mean, he was valedictorian. Unlike me, he didn't have ADHD. <laughs> he wasn't dyslexic. He never had a B before in his life. So, um, you know, we had great aspirations, you know, we had great ideas of what he was going to be. 
And I never wanted him to drop the ball on that because he didn't have parents. So, you know, we went through a phase where it was a struggle because I was trying to be his parent. And I kind of was anyway, because again, my parents were immigrants. And so I'm five years older than him. So I had figured things out. So I was the one talking about where he should go to school and how he should do things because I had already done that. Um, And it was a bit of a struggle because, you know, I was so consumed with him um, wanting to succeed and being super successful that I forgot to really think through his emotional well-being. So while I, you know, pushed him to succeed and, you know, he ended up going to law school and he's super successful. He has a, you know, very high position in the FBI now. So, you know, he did exceptionally well for himself. Um, It was a struggle to do that, but I was happy to do that because I didn't want to let my parents down because I knew what they wanted for him. Oh, I'm sure they're very proud of both of you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. So you flee your native land at the age of seven in the middle of the night. You come to a country with a lang- where you can't speak the language. You learn later on about ADD, dyslexia. You've earned an undergraduate degree. You went on to law school and got your law degree. You passed the bar exam in not one, but two states and became a criminal prosecutor. Yep. Why criminal prosecution? Why not corporate law, family law, some other discipline? Yeah, I, um, when I was in college, when I was an undergrad, I uh, was a clerk and a volunteer at the district attorney's office. And there is when, um, you know, I learned how important it was uh, to help the underdog. And I had been an underdog. So I'm always about helping the underdog. So being a criminal prosecutor was something that, you know, was very much interesting to me. And, you know, what better way to do your work, um, get paid for it and help people. Um, So that was the first reason that I wanted to be a criminal prosecutor. And uh, the second reason is because I have ADHD and dyslexia, um, those corporate jobs were never for me. Like I, I had really, I had a lot of difficulty in law school, like taking exams, taking tests again, because of my learning disability. However, where I truly shined was in my trial advocacy class. So, um, you know, that, that's when I, I became a, a Corbo fellow, which is um, at Loyola, what they do is a national mock trial team. So I made that team. And, you know, I was good at that. I could talk all day when it came to writing. I wasn't so good. So sitting behind a desk all day as a corporate lawyer or a family lawyer or something like that, I just can't think of anything to be more grueling. So as a prosecutor, you're dealing with traumatized victims, horrible crimes, and the worst of the worst people. Happens to me all the time. No worries. No worries. So how quickly do lawyers, doctors, therapists, and other professionals who work with those situations become desensitized? Uh, Very, very quickly. And it's really sad because um, those, those people become desensitized because you're seeing these horrible things over and over and over again all the time. And um, you don't even realize it until, you know, you wake up one day and you're like, oh, the rape victim, that's not really a big deal. That's not really a big deal. And, you know, so I was in the sex crimes unit for kids. And I remember when I was speaking with my colleagues about the adults that were getting raped, I start to think, well, they're, they're adults. They're not even kids, you know, suck it up. I was like, wow. And, you know, now, you know, if I see a dead body, I'll just step over it kind of thing, because you're just you're so used to seeing all these things. And unfortunately, the people that are in in those jobs, the only way they deal with it is by trying to numb themselves. So they numb themselves through drinking, through partying. And and a lot of those prosecutors drink a lot. That's just a fact. And that's just because that's the only way they can numb themselves and deal with that. Do you see a crisis happening there in that profession? Absolutely. 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 Um, and, I, and I don't really know a way around that because you can try to detach yourself, um, but it's hard. I, I never mastered that. And it really takes a piece of your soul that you will never get back. Well, you mentioned detachment there. You know, is there a certain amount of detachment that's good or even necessary? And how do you strike the right emotional balance you know, that, that enabled you to have empathy, but not to take too much out of you? Yeah, again, you know, I, I never really mastered that. um, But I think you automatically become detached because you become desensitized. So the thing, you know, two months ago that freaked you out that you went home and thought about and you're like, Oh, my gosh, I can't sleep at night. 
that doesn't have the same effect on you. So you become detached through desensitization, I think. And as a criminal prosecutor, did you ever see a certain type of criminal that surprised you? Someone who most people think there's no way that person could commit a crime. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, most of the sex offenders are people that you would never, ever guess would be sex offenders. They're like the cute, chubby guy next door, you know, who, who's the nicest person that you would never think that. And the reason for that is that those are the most inconspicuous people. The people that are the weirdos, you see immediately people report those guys. So they can't even they don't even get to the point where they could be true sex offenders. You know, the first thing they do, they get caught and that's it. But it's the guys that you don't really um, anticipate being that, that are the antithesis of what you would think are the ones that commit all the crimes. I mean, look at, look at Ted Bundy, for example. I mean, he was a law student. He was charming. He was good looking. That's why he was able to get away with all, all of these things. If he were anything but that, he would have gotten caught years ago. We've had a few guests on regarding uh, sex crimes and human trafficking. And they always say, to your point, it's the person you'd least expect. And it's, you know, people think not in my neighborhood. There's no way that could happen. Right. And it's right under the nose, the, the, the guy or the gal next door. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's actually very scary. You left criminal law to pursue a new career path. How did that happen? And what advice do you have for someone in our audience who may be thinking of making their own career change? That um, don't be afraid to make a career change. Sometimes you have to take a step back to take two steps forward. And for me, how this happened is um, I moved to California and, um, you know, I was going to go work for a bankruptcy firm just because I, uh, you know, the criminal prosecution <laughs> just got the best of me. And I was at a job fair for one of my friends, not even for me. I just I just went with him. And um, there was someone there from uh, Wells Fargo and I was just hanging out and I just happened to be talking to him. And he really liked me. And we were talking. He was from Merchant Services. Those are the people that do the credit card processing. And um, he said, you know, you could come, you, you, you should come work for us. I could tell you could sell. And because I was an attorney, you know, I was selling my case to the judge and the jury. So there really are a lot of skills that overlap. And, um, you know, and I said, well, I'm really interested in a management position. And he said, well, I can't give you a management position now. You're going to have to sell and prove yourself. So um, just imagine I went from being a prosecutor to selling credit card processing door to door. Okay. I mean, I, I remember the first day I was in like the Valley, which is the hottest area of LA. It was like 110 degrees. I was in a suit with heels. I mean, I had blood in my shoe because I had so many blisters. I mean, you had to peel my suit off me. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't short-sighted. And I think that's the issue with a lot of people when they want to make a career change. They're like, well, I'm not going to go take a step back and do whatever because I've, I've been in this position, but that's really short-sighted. And I, you know, I took that job and after four months, I was the number one salesperson in the country. And two months later, they gave me a management job. And that's how I excelled to where I am today. If I had not taken that step back or had the guts to make that career change, I wouldn't be here. I would still be, you know, a prosecutor or working behind a desk at a bankruptcy firm. Why is that no surprise to me that after four months, you're number one salesperson in the country? <laughs> I, no surprise. Thank you. <laughs> you began to share your knowledge of business decorum and etiquette on TikTok. What was it about the medium that you led to choose TikTok? And how do people find you on TikTok? Yeah, so um, I have done a lot of work with big brothers and big sisters. I was actually a big sister. And I was right before the pandemic, I was scheduled to go and give a lot of talks at, at, at their events to, um, to the kids in the program. And when the pandemic happened, that was all shut down. And I felt like the information was so important to get out there. And I woke up at 2.30 in the middle of the night. I was like, I can make videos with this information because kids are always, you know, watching videos and things like that. So I, um, so at that point, I decided to make some YouTube videos. Didn't go so well. I only, you know, was getting like 25 views. Um, but again, you know, this is failure. You learn from it. So I lo looked at the analytics. People started dropping off about a minute, minute and 25 seconds. I was like, you know what? This is too long. Let me go to TikTok. So TikTok is one minute fast. And um, I locked myself in my room for four days. Uh, I posted three a day and here I am. 
And you can find me at Duchess of Decorum. <laughs> that is my handle, Duchess of Decorum on TikTok. What sparked your interest in etiquette and decorum and sharing information about it with others? I think this is crucial information that people don't have when they enter the workplace. We've been talking to Padia Sai, and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we're back with Patty Asai, the Duchess of Decorum. And she's ready to answer a number of questions about etiquette and workplace decorum in this half of our podcast. Etiquette can be very daunting and unnerving for many people. Is it a matter of social class and maybe feelings of insecurity or maybe even inferiority? Or are there other factors at work? And why does etiquette cause so many people to worry? It causes people to worry because uh, people feel like they don't know proper etiquette and they're afraid to mess up and they're afraid to look stupid and embarrass themselves. That, that, that's really what it is. And um, again, you know, etiquette shouldn't be just for the rich. It shouldn't be just for the privileged. Etiquette is something everyone should learn, something that should be accessible to everybody. And uh, it's not really that hard. I mean, I taught myself. So, um, you know, it's not that hard to learn etiquette. Just watch my videos. It's so easy. I promise um, you'll learn immediately. And let's take the flip side of that question. It seems like fewer people follow proper etiquette and that many people's behavior has become more coarse these days. Why do you think that's happened? Is there any chance of reversing that trend? 
that's happened, I think, because this day and age, we're so about individuality and I am who I am. Don't try to change me. You know, this is just me. And I identify with however I want to identify. If I, if I want to look like a slob eating, then, I, then that's perfectly okay. Who's to tell me not to? Um, so I think that's one of the, one of the reasons um, that we don't see it that often. Um, but I think those people really have a rude awakening when they go into real life and they understand that, yeah, there are rules. Sorry, you know, you may be who you are, but there are certain ways that you have to act. And there's certain ways that you have to behave in social settings that, you know, that are considered proper and not. So, um, you know, it's not all about you doing what, whatever the hell you want to do just because you're an individual. <laughs> and what are the most common etiquette mistakes that you see people make? The way they hold their fork. Uh, people typically hold their fork incorrectly. Um, you're supposed to hold your fork between your index finger and your thumb. And most people will hold it like, or some people will hold it like this or with their middle finger or in between their middle finger and their ring finger. So that that's something I see very, uh, very common. And another etiquette mistake is they don't cut steak or meat properly. So um, you'll see someone cutting meat and just sawing back and forth, and that's improper etiquette. You're supposed to cut from the top down in one direction. Uh, that's a huge mistake that I see most people make. Most people don't know that rule. I don't think I knew the one about the steak. I'll have to make sure I, I think of that next now time we do. Uh, we do some <laughs> grilling do. out back. Yep. You had an interesting experience with a man in a restaurant that tells a valuable lesson about manners. I got a real kick out of that story when we spoke last week. <laughs> Would you share that with our audience as is a perfect example of why it pays to be nice to everyone? Sure. Yes, this is the perfect example. Um, so when I was a prosecutor, as, as a prosecutor, you don't make that much money. I was making like $30,000 a year. So I waited tables at night. And um, one night, these three guys come in and um, it was after a Bulls game and they were wasted. And uh, one of the guys kept calling me like, hey, babe, babe, babe. And I kept saying, hey, sir, you know, my name is not babe, it's Patty. And he just, you know, would stop, wouldn't stop doing that. It was just so rude to me. And um, then he didn't like the way that I was not responding to the babe. So he tells my manager that I'm racist and all these like ridiculous things that, that didn't even, that hadn't even come into play. And my manager then reprimanded me and I was so upset. I this is the first time I've ever, and only time I've ever cried at work. I went into the closet and I was like crying and I was like praying to the universe. I'm like, you know what? I don't have the power to do something to this guy, but you do. I'm like, just, you know, serve justice on this guy for, for doing this to me. So uh, the next day I go to work my day job as a prosecutor. And I was actually a first chair in the DUI courtroom. And uh, guess who had gotten a DUI that night? That guy. <laughs> And he walked into my courtroom and he, like, he looked like he'd seen a ghost. And he was like, he just looked at me, his eyes got really big. And I just continued doing it. And he walks over to me. He goes, are you the different, the, the defense attorney in this courtroom? And I said, no, sir, I'm the first year prosecutor. Please have a seat. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so he, uh, he wasn't happy. He, and it got even better. You know, he asked for a public defender. And so the public defender talked to me and was like, you know, what is your offer? And I said, oh, he's not getting the minimum. And he's and the public defender is like, why, what happened? And I told him what happened. He's like, oh, so this guy has money. I'm like, yeah, he goes, oh, well, I'm not going to defend him. <laughs> so they, they made him go back, bring his own attorney. And uh, when he came back, he was such a jerk that he didn't get the minimum anyway, that the judge gave him a higher sentence for just being a jerk. So yeah, you never know who you are being rude to and disrespectful to. Um, you know, there, there's a saying my dad would always say, um, hey, be careful which feet you step on because they may be attached to the ass you got to kiss later. So um, <laughs> be, be careful who you're rude to. <laughs> I, have to. I have to write that one down too. Uh, that's a, a beautiful case study of karma. That's just yep. unbelievable. Exactly. No, exactly. I love that story. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. What are your top three pieces of etiquette advice that you think everyone in the audience should know? Top three, and these are really easy, but most people don't abide by them. One is um, if you're at dinner with a group of people, make sure that everyone gets their food before you start to eat. Don't start to eat the second they plop the food down in front of you. This isn't a contest to see who finishes faster. 
So this is your dining with people. So that's the first one. Um, the second one is if you're getting up to go to the restroom, simply excuse yourself. You don't need to tell everybody and announce it to the world that you're going to the bathroom. Um, it's just so rude when we're sitting, someone's like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom. Okay, well, just excuse yourself. You don't, you don't need to announce that to everybody. Um, and the third is uh, the mistake I see a lot of people make, and they should really not do that, is anytime you go to someone's house, never go empty-handed. Always take a small small gift or a token of your appreciation. So never go to anyone's home empty-handed. Words to live by. Yep. And what would you say to someone who says to you that some of these ideas may be antiquated? That those people don't understand the reasons for etiquette. They think it was just, you know, something that came up in the Victorian era and some, you know, posh dude and decided that this is the way we're going to do things. And uh, that's simply not the truth. There are reasons for every etiquette rule. Then why do you think etiquette is just as relevant today as it, is, as it ever has been? Because, uh, like I said, there's reasons for these rules. So, for example, the etiquette rule of um, you should always pass food to the right. Okay, That comes from the idea of you don't want a bunch of food going across the table and it's spilling and it just being chaos. So um, these rules are there for you know, certain reasons. They create order. And, you know, order is always welcome and order is never antiquated. Why do you think there are so many young adults who don't know proper etiquette in the same way the generations before them did? I think because, again, the same mentality of, you know, I'm independent. I don't need to worry about how I eat. And uh, so, you know, their parents weren't taught. And so if their parents aren't taught, they're not teaching their children. Um, I, I think that that's really that's, that's really why we don't see it that often, but I want to try to change that. And that's another re reason I make these etiquette videos is just, you know, so people learn and they understand that it's not that hard. And that's a great setup. What's your handle on TikTok again? Duchess of Decorum. Love it. We'll, we'll get that tagged out there as well. Thank you. When should we start teaching our kids about proper etiquette? As soon as they get out of this high chair and are sitting in a regular chair, even the booster seat, um, you got to start early. If you don't start early, those habits are really, really hard to break. So uh, the sooner you start, the better, the sooner they understand how to place their napkin on their lap, what you know, utensils they should use, that you should start right then and there. How important is proper etiquette to career advancement? Is it something only for people in the C-suite or is it something that has the potential to make or break folks' careers? Oh, it can make or break your career. And I, I, I've seen it happen. Um, you know, you think it's just for the C-suite people, but no, if you're at a work function, most people that are in the higher end of that company know proper etiquette and are watching you. And they will see how you're eating and how you're behaving. And if you're behaving like you were raised by wolves, that's not going to be a good look for you. And it can, it can potentially ruin your career because they're thinking, well, if we promote this individual, this individual is going to embarrass the hell out of us if we go out to dinner with someone or if we're going to lunch with someone. And they're not going to risk that. So, um, yeah, you can certainly get your career ruined and not get promoted just because you don't know proper etiquette for sure. And sticking with workplace etiquette for another moment, I saw a couple of stories that list the top workplace etiquette questions that many people have. I've changed them just a little but let's take them one by one. Are All right, ready? let's do it. Yes. All right. Let's go for it. First, how can I say no to my boss without sounding rude? Uh, well, you never say no. Um, there's other ways of saying it, right? So no is never something that should come out of your mouth. But what you should focus on is the reason you don't want to do a certain task, okay? And express that. So for example, if you're working on three projects and your boss comes and says, hey, I want you to work on this fourth project, Instead of saying, no, I don't have time or no, I don't, I can't do it. Um, you say, I would love to help you with the project. However, the three projects that I'm working on are taking up all of my time. Will you help me prioritize my work so I can figure out how to include this project and be able to help out? So at that point, you're telling your boss, I really don't have the time for this, but I'm happy to do it. But you got to help me out and figure out how I'm going to make the time. And hope second. that they go to another person. <laughs> yes, exactly. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. And second, when someone asks me out to lunch, who's expected to pay? The person who asks. 
And this is a big controversial, but I always say whoever asks should pay because you're the one asking for that individual to spend their time with you. Okay. So if you're asking them for that, then you should be paying. Um, however, I think, you know, that rule becomes a, a lot more flexible once you've established a relationship with someone or a friendship. So, you know, it's, at that point, it's a, it's a little bit more casual. So you don't necessarily have to follow whoever asks pays because, you know, that's just not fair in any type of relationship. But I think in the beginning, whoever asks pays. And next, this is a real 2020s etiquette question. Okay. Is it, is it a good idea to add my workers to my social networking sites? Oh, horrible idea. Absolutely horrible idea because um, they're your coworkers and you may think they're your friends, but um, they also are working in an environment with you. And if they see something that they don't like, they can report you. And that could cause you your job. That could cost you your job. So you never want to do that. Keep it separate. Related to that question, what should I tell a coworker if I turn down their invitation to join their social network? I would say a really nice way of saying it is I really appreciate you reaching out to me to connect on LinkedIn or whatever, whatever it is, or on Facebook. Um, However, I really like to keep my personal life separate from my work life. And I think it would benefit us both if we do that. Let's stick with LinkedIn just for a minute. That's a bit of a sticky point because it kind of crosses the personal and professional realm. Yeah. Uh, You know, I was on LinkedIn years ago, but really kind of saw it as, I call it Facebook for business yeah. and, and, and wasn't active on it until years later, I was looking to transition jobs and realized what a great tool it actually is. Yes. You know, pe- people try and post things that are very business minded or whatever their, their profession is, but sometimes it gets a little gray in there. Yes. Um, is, is it the same rules for LinkedIn as it is for Facebook and other social media platforms? Uh, yes, a- absolutely. You know, one thing you, you mentioned on LinkedIn, um, I have become that person on LinkedIn where I will comment on people's posts and say, this isn't Facebook. Why are you putting this on LinkedIn? Um, I've literally become that person because LinkedIn is a professional platform. You know, I don't need to know um, your political beliefs. So um, generally on, but on any social platform, you don't want to put anything out there that you don't want the world to see, including the CEO of your company or your boss. And I like to use um, the acronym that I made up. It's called DRIPS with two S's. And these are the things you don't ever want to post on social media. D, anything around drugs or alcohol. R, religion. I, illegal activity. P, politics. S, anything that's sexual in nature. And the other S, anything that's secretive or confidential company information. Did you trademark that acronym? <laughs> I should. You I will. Should. As soon as as soon as we get off this podcast, let me, let me go. Let me go and go to that comment by the website uh, drips.com. Uh, <laughs> it's so simple, but yet to your point, people don't do it. Yeah, they don't get it. I don't know why they don't get it. Here's another modern day workplace question: An estimated thirty five percent of Americans have at least one tattoo. I know it depends on the particular workplace, but what sort of advice do you have about appropriate workplace decorum? when it comes to displaying or not displaying tattoos? Read the room, first of all. Then that means figure out what industry you're in and look around, okay? So if you are in a more artsy industry and you're looking around and everyone's got tattoos, including your boss and people don't mind, you know, showing them off, that's fine, you can do that. However, if you're in a more corporate job, again, read the room, look around. See, do a lot of people have tattoos? Are they showing their tattoos? And if they're not, then you need to cover up your tattoos. I, I, I worked with a guy who I, um, who I just saw like at, I think it was in Santa Monica and he was so tatted up and I had never seen his tattoos. I was just shocked. And he said, oh yeah, work. I don't, I don't show my tattoos. He always wore long sleeve shirts with a t-shirt and no one knew um, because if they did, then they may judge him. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, uh, but I'm just saying that's just the reality of it. So yeah, cover up if the people around you aren't showing them and you shouldn't be either. Finally, many workplaces have gone casual. The days of the suit and tie or dresses and high heels are gone. But still, how casual is too casual? You know, and how should we dress in a casual workplace? So um, never wear anything that you would wear to the beach, to the pool, 
to work out or do any physical activity or to a club where you want to attract people. Okay. So stay away from all those things. I think that that's, if, if you stay away from those things, that's 80% of the battle. I think the other 20% is uh, you don't want to wear anything that's too revealing, anything that's too tight. Your clothes should be well-fitted, nice, neat, and clean. And if you stick by those rules, I think you'll be fine. As we talk about business decorum and social media, I think many people, and especially the younger people, fail to realize that many employers or potential employers do look at their social media accounts. Do you think it's fair for employers or potential employers to look at someone's social media, or is that an invasion of privacy? Oh, it's absolutely fair, because when you put anything online, you're giving up all your, all your private rights. That's the way I see it. Um, you know, th- that's what social media is. You're, you're, you're putting your life online. So you better be ready for people to look at it. And I, I, I can tell you, I know a lot of recruiters and every single one of those recruiters, the first thing they do before agreeing to any interview someone is they look on, online to see if they can find them on social media. Let's talk old school media for a minute. I understand you're working on a book. Can you share any details about it with us? Sure. Um, so I'm actually working on two books. One is um, basically a young person's guide to conquering the world type of thing. And it's a step-by-step instructional guide as to what do you do when you graduate high school or college? So you graduated, right? How do you know what job is good for you? How do you know how to interview? How do you even get that interview? Once you've got that interview, what do you do in the interview? Okay, now you've got the job. How do you negotiate your salary? What should and should you not do at work? How do you ask for a promotion? You've gotten your first paycheck. How do you become financially responsible? What do you do without money? And then etiquette, how do you act in social settings? So that book is uh, the first book that I'm working on. Um, And the second book I've actually written already, it's my memoir. And um, it just goes through my life from Iran to um, today. And those books, you know, we're looking for the right uh, partners, publishing partners, and hopefully they'll be out soon. What's involved in that publishing process? I mean, that's a, especially writing your memoirs. I mean, that's a very personal thing. Yeah. You want to get the story out there, but I know there's a process after you spent days, weeks, months, years writing the actual manuscript. Yes. So I, um, I wrote actually during the pandemic, I wrote, you know, four or five hours a day from month to month to month. Um, and the process is, you know, I, I wrote it and then you have an editor so I handed in 600 pages and now it's 230 pages. <laughs> so <laughs> they just slash, 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 you know, and it's at the end of the day, it's best for the book. Right. Um, but yeah, then you have another editor to look at it. So it's a huge process and you have to find someone that really sees your vision. Right. Um, so for even my, my first book about conquering the world, Someone has to see that vision and understand that this is something that every single young person needs in their hands because you're not learning these lessons. And um, not a lot of people will see that vision. Not a lot of, lot of people will understand that. And you know what? That sucks for them because it's, <laughs> it's, it's something that everybody needs. Um, so you just have to make sure that the people that you're working with see the same vision as you. Well, hats off to you for not only going through the process once, but twice. Uh, <laughs> yes. And good luck with that. Please keep us posted Thank as you go you. through that, that publishing process. Will do. Thank you. We have just a few minutes left. Patty, your life story has been so inspiring. What parting advice do you have for audience to feel more empowered, lead through adversity, and achieve their goals? That, um, first of all, if I can do it, anybody can do it. I've always said that if, if I have gone through the you know life with all the obstacles, so if I can do it, anyone can do it. But Um, I think there's three components to success and reaching your goal. Um, The first one is you got to work your ass off. You got to work hard. There is no shortcuts. You can't, you you just cannot shortcut this. It's a process. So you got to put in the work. And uh, I love the quote from uh, that says, uh, I'm trying to, oh, it says the harder I work, the luckier I get. I think Samuel Goldwyn said that. And so you got to work hard. Number one. Number two, you have to embrace failure. Um, some people get so discouraged with failure, they, uh, they let it you know, just destroy them. And what people don't understand is failure is a necessary ingredient for success. It's absolutely necessary. Anybody that you see that is successful has failed over and over and over again. 
And the reason they're successful is because they failed. Because when you fail, you learn from those mistakes. You become better. If you don't fail, you're never going to get better. You don't really learn from success. You only learn from failure. And um, they asked Edison, they were like, oh, well, how do you feel that, that from the fact that it took you a thousand failures to get to the light bulb? And he said, I didn't fail a thousand times. There was a thousand steps to getting to the light bulb. So failure is just steps. It's getting you one step closer to your goal. And, you know, you can't let that break you. And I think the third component is perseverance in Reaching your goal, it's not going to be easy. You're going to be thrown down to the ground. You're going to be heartbroken. You're going to be stomped on. I mean, it's, it's a tough ride, man. It really, really is. But I like to use the analogy that, um, you know, boxers aren't judged by how hard they hit, but they're judged by how often they get up. So you got to just get up. You're going to be knocked down, but you got to get up and persevere. And if you do those three things, you can accomplish any goal that, that, that you set for yourself. I promise you just have to get up. Well, Patty, this has been an unbelievably productive conversation because we found the title not only for one book, Tell Your Own Damn Immigrant Story, but for your business book, you got to work your ass off. So <laughs> I'm just putting them out there. Uh, I yeah. love those. And so I'm just going to, you know, I'll just take 10%. Thank That's you. Fine. I'll give you credit. I'll, I'll give you credit for that. Perfect. And one last question. It's probably the most important one of the day. What do you think of our Cowboys chances this year? Oh, they're going for it, man. They're going is for it. it, right? Yeah. I watch hard knocks. I watch the whole thing. Yeah. We're, we're going for it this year. This is it. This is we're our saying year. every year, but this is our year. <laughs> I really feel it this time, Chris. I, I really it. do. I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> Patty Sai, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was a blast. I had a great time. Thanks, Chris. No, you're an amazing, inspirational woman and truly appreciate you taking time on your busy schedule. So thank you. Thank you so much. And as always, thank you to our wonderful audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with our leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.